Slow Burn Media and Bill Huffman present a special episode of Who Killed, featuring Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast and Kelsey German, the sister of Libby German, from the Delphi murder case. Our top story this morning happening right now in Carroll County. The sheriff's office and community members continue to look for two missing girls last seen near the Monon High Bridge Trail in Delphi. News 18's Alexis Moberger reports how many have spent hours searching and they say they will not stop looking until the girls are found. We're just praying for their safe return. 13-year-olds Liberty German and Abigail Williams went missing Monday. The girls were last seen near an abandoned railroad bridge known as the Monon High Bridge around 1 o'clock in the afternoon. All upset, confused, obviously very distraught. Just worried. All I want to do is have the girls get home safe. Honestly, I hope they're just hidden up somewhere, scared to be in trouble. This is breaking news from Channel 13 Eyewitness We have news. nobody in, in custody at this time. Uh, so as far as I'm concerned, yes, there is somebody out there that did this horrendous crime. And uh, we're going to track them down. That's state police talking about the fear and concern in a small town community after they announced that two missing girls were, in fact, victims of murder. Investigators solemnly identified the two bodies found in Carroll County as 13-year-olds Libby German and Abby Williams. Now, we still don't know what happened to them after they disappeared during an afternoon hiking trip. I think they were in pretty much belief that it was their, their children. Um, but when you hear it from an official, it, it's, it's still a little just, still it hits home twice. One of the hundreds of volunteer searchers found the bodies of Libby German and Abby Williams in a wooded area near Deer Creek. It is an area accessible only by foot or on horse. We are using resources from uh, all the way from Lowell, Fort Wayne, and uh, the southern state, uh, the southern part of the state's uh, police, state troopers. We will stay on the job until it is done. So as far as I'm concerned, yes, there is somebody out there that did this horrendous crime, and uh, we're going to track them down. Jeff and Kayla, two bodies were discovered around 1215 this afternoon, just east of Delphi, not too far from where I'm standing, actually, near Deer Creek. Now, although, although their identities are unknown, they were found less than a mile upstream from the Monon High Bridge, where 13-year-olds Liberty German and Abigail Williams were last seen yesterday. The FBI, Indiana State Police, the Carroll County Sheriff's Office, and Delphi Police are all working the investigation. As police continue a very methodical investigation here, going down every road in the search for clues, some folks who live near the crime scene, they fear that their road will never be the same. Again, they have not said he's a suspect or a person of interest. Instead, investigators believe that he is the only person they haven't identified who was in the area at that time. This gentleman has not been identified, and we want to know what he saw, what he might have seen on the trail. Uh, did he see somebody else that maybe some of the others didn't see? The Sheriff's Department says the trail photos of a man released Wednesday have brought in about 200 tips, and they're checking every one of them, they say. Hello and welcome to this very special episode, episode 84 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media production. And on this week's episode, I will be featuring Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast, as well as Kelsey German, the sister of Liberty German of Delphi, Indiana. And if you guys have been following the past few weeks' episodes, you are familiar with Kelsey and her sister's case. And having Nick join the conversation just this past week was 
quite insightful, and I really hope you guys enjoy our conversation. Nick does some great probing. He's a great interviewer. And again, if you're familiar with True Crime Garage, that is definitely one of the premier true crime podcasts in the business. So I was lucky enough to not only have Kelsey on the show, but Nick to co-host with me. So this was an excellent episode, and I hope you guys enjoy. So let's jump right in to episode number 84 of Who Killed? with Kelsey German and Nick from True Crime Garage. Yeah, do you guys know each other? Nick and Kelsey? Um, we, I okay. actually met. We met at CrimeCon, one of the CrimeCons. I don't, I think it might have been last year. Did you, is that the only one you've gone to? No, we went to the last two of them. Okay, so I was lucky enough to meet your grandmother and speak with her briefly at both of them. And... I spoke with you very briefly near the podcast row. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I talked to a lot of people. Yeah, I think you were <laughs> over there talking to Mike Morford, and I and I came over and said hello real quick. Yeah, that could have been it. Yeah, it was probably when you were doing the when you were interviewing people. Yeah, I was just interviewing random people. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> How are the podcast? Basically, I just wanted to touch base. It's been a long time since we've actually talked. I know that I. Uh, kind of delayed releasing the episodes by a number of months, but uh, life got in the way. And let's, uh, let's catch up where things stand on the case. And, you know, we basically kind of, I don't think we ever really finished our full conversation about it anyway. So what do you have to share since everything seems to come through you nowadays, as far as information from this, from the case. And I know that Nick's I'm sure got a number of questions, but You've basically taken over the spokesperson role. You have become the advocate of your sister, as we all know. Have you seen an increase in tips or productivity from the cops or any anything that's come down that's given you any hope that we're one step closer? I wouldn't say like there's there's not really any new information that I have, but I do know they are re-interviewing people. Um, they actually re-interviewed me for like the 500th time. Um, very recently, like last week. Um, they're super cool guys. I went in and we were joking and I told them that like, I was describing certain people and helping them like know who people were and stuff. And I was describing one of them and one of them had like widow's peaks. And so I was describing them as the, as a detective. I was like, he looks exactly like you with the widow's peaks with a little beer belly, um, (laughs) little old, um, so we were making fun of them, kind of just joking. Um, and they were all newer people to the case, I think. I think they were fresh eyes. Um, and that gave me a lot of hope that they're definitely restarting everything, looking at everything fresh. New people are looking at it and um, just trying to see if they can get any new information that'll help them now. So, like, people could have forgot stuff that they they didn't realize was important and they turn it in now and that's perfectly fine. They'll just re-interview them. So I definitely know they're working on it, which was exciting for me. Yeah. The one thing that I read in that article that stood out and it's, you know, it's always kind of stood out when they do press conferences and whatnot, but the, the fact that they're so convinced it's somebody local because I mean, we've talked about it. We talked about it in the first episode where you wouldn't know this bridge existed if you didn't, come from the area of Delphi or at least traveled in the area of Delphi. So it's like, I mean, 
So they're re-interviewing all these people. So I'm assuming all these people must be local. Yeah, so they're just going back over, like, the people that they interviewed in the beginning. So, like, they're interviewing me, Libby's friends, my friends, just the people that they interviewed before to see if maybe they remembered something that they don't, they didn't say before because they didn't think it was important. So just going back over things, making sure the same information's there and trying to find something new out of what they had before. Hey, Nick, what were you showing me before? Oh, I threw it across the room. Oh. <laughs> Podcasting at its finest. <laughs> I mean, that's our newspaper. Look how cool we are. Yeah. Why do you get <laughs> Why do you have that, Nick? I'm a subscriber. I have been for quite some time, and um, well, to put it bluntly, I'm looking for this guy's face every week in the in the newspaper. <laughs> and it's I know it sounds silly, but I've been doing that for a while. In regards to the bridge, and one thing I kind of want you to hit this home for the people that don't know, you know, live not living in that area. You said something that was pretty powerful in one of the podcasts, and it really. It really, it was something that I was thinking before, but it really gave confirmation to it. And what you said was that you have a strong belief that this suspect has crossed that bridge before. That was not his first time that day crossing that bridge. And that goes back to the point of this being a local guy or someone familiar with the area. Could you kind of just expand on that a little bit for those that don't know? Because... You know, one thing that I kept coming across when I was researching the case in the area itself is that while the bridge might be a popular place for locals and maybe for teens, but it's also it's a high enough bridge, scary enough bridge that not everyone that sees it decides that they actually want to cross the bridge. And um, this guy was moving at a pretty good speed across the bridge. And that gives you some belief that that he has traversed that that bridge before oh yeah that bridge is terrifying i had to go to the bridge probably three or four times before i would actually go across it and even when i would go across it i was walking like super slow i crawled across it the first time um so that bridge is very high very scary but people in delphi definitely do go there and i know people outside of delphi that don't know it's there i know people in delphi that don't know it's there so I know, I've, I don't know, I guess, but I just have a very strong feeling that he had to have crossed that bridge before in order to walk across it the way he did. Just in that short clip, it looked like he was walking across it pretty confidently. So I, I definitely believe it's somebody local that had been to the area before and knew the bridge very well and knew the surrounding area well. Yeah, the fact that it was a half mile down the bridge where they were found I would assume that's even more off the beaten path. Yeah, that the place where they were found is actually a place that like even I had never been over there before. So in order to kind of navigate that area, you would have to know the woods around the bridge, the creek and the bridge itself pretty well. Is there hunting there? I don't think there would be in that specific area, okay. maybe a little ways down. Okay, I was just wondering if somebody maybe was familiar with just that territory. Well, so. and it's not very far past the bridge that at some point it becomes private property, correct? Yeah, so once you cross the bridge, it's actually private property already. So 
there used to be like a fence at the very end of the bridge so you couldn't go anywhere else um but i think over time that just kind of decayed and nobody fixed it so people would just walk wherever they wanted but there's actually like a private driveway um and the land back there is owned by one of the houses over there the people that own that house own that land and what do you think the motivation was of your your sister and your and her friend that day? Do you think that it was just we're going to cross this bridge? Um, I believe one of them, one of the girls, had never crossed the bridge before. What would be the typical young kid mo it, to cross the bridge, take a quick pick to you know uh, mark the occasion, and then turn right around and head back? Oh yeah, so you can cross the bridge. Um... There's actually like a tree. If you go down the bridge, you go down the hill and you turn to the right. There's a like tree with hanging shoes. It's kind of creepy, but people will go down there and take pictures of it. Um, and that's a place me and Libby had visited before. Um, so a lot of times they'll cross it and walk the little driveway that's down there and then just turn back around and go back to their car or back to Freedom Bridge or wherever they're going. But it's just something fun to do. You go down and take pictures, turn around, and start over. How long would that of a hike would that be? I think to get across the bridge for me took about five minutes. Uh, and then to get to the tree would probably take another five minutes and then back. So, I mean, altogether probably half an hour. So, but they were there for, they were going to be there for a few hours, though. That was the plan at least, right? Um, they were going to be there from about one thirty until 3.30-ish. Okay. And it wasn't so much a set time, a set ending time. It was more whenever they could be picked up. Is that yeah. right? Like, so whenever my dad was done taking pictures for my grandma, he was going to go there and get them. Um, and they knew it wasn't going to be very long, so probably just a couple hours, a little less. In that article, too, they also talk about how they at first didn't think it was a – they didn't take it as a – kidnapping or anything like that that they maybe just were lost and i mean i assume that that's what the best case scenario was and did you feel that way as well or did you think that something nefarious had occurred before you know you found out in the very beginning we were all kind of thinking that they'd gone across the bridge and gotten hurt um they dropped their phone they were trying to find it um, or they got lost somewhere out in the woods. Um, our first thought was just to keep thinking about the best case scenario. We didn't, we didn't ever imagine that was what was gonna happen in the end. Would it be easy to get lost there? Um, I think if you stay on the trail, it wouldn't be super easy to get lost. If you got out in the woods, you definitely could get a little disoriented if you didn't know where you were. Just because once you get to a certain point, you can't see the bridge anymore, so you don't really know where you are. Um, but I don't, I don't think you would get lost if you knew the area. Are there a lot of trees? Like, I know this is a stupid question, but like <laughs> when I drive across Indiana, it's just like, you know, a lot of fields, a lot of, you know, I mean, is this is this like a tree-lined hillscape area, or is is this more rolling hills than what is up north? I wouldn't say a lot of rolling hills, um, <laughs> but it's not as flat as the other parts of Delphi. So most of Delphi is a bunch of cornfields and bean fields. That's about <laughs> it. But our trail system is lined with a bunch of trees. So you're surrounded by trees. You can't really see the cornfield. 
you can't actually even see the water from most of the trail. But once you get like to a certain point on the trail, you can see that kind of stuff. It's just not so it's kind of like in a valley. So like there's two hills surrounding the mm-hmm. the water, um, but they're not like huge mountains like you see in like Tennessee or something. It's like bigger than what Indiana's used to, I guess, or what Delphi's used to. Okay. I just was wondering, just especially with it being, you know, a 60 foot drop from the, the bridge. So I was just wondering then how that all worked. So. Yeah, so one side's actually taller than the other, um, but I do think once, you, like, the bridge going straight, it does go down pretty far over land for a little while, and then it goes straight into the land at the other end that leads into a field where there would have been, like a like a railroad would have went through there and back out into a bunch of cornfields. And that bridge goes over... Deer Creek? Yeah, Deer Creek. And have you ever, on the opposite side of the bridge, have you ever crossed that that little portion of Deer Creek there? Which they call Deer Creek, but it's a river, right? Um, well, it's a, it's the, the Deer Creek goes into the Wabash River. Okay. Yeah. How um, big is it? How big is the river? Yeah, how big is the, well, how big is the creek? <laughs> This Deer Creek. I mean, I think Bill wide, means how wide at how that wide. at that portion. Yeah, on the other side of the bridge, not the not the full history of this river. <laughs> that's that's a lot. I'm not that knowledgeable. Um, <laughs> I think I just was wondering if it was like a little creek or it was like a you know a sixty foot wide. It river. kind of looks like a river, to be honest, when you're looking at it. Okay. Um, but I think that part is man-made, so I think that's why they call it a creek. Gotcha. Well, I just sound like an idiot then. <laughs> That's okay. It's fine. We all ask silly questions. <laughs> hey, you're in school. There's no such thing as a stupid question, right? Exactly. But there are silly questions. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Throw me under the bus. <laughs> is the uh, the ballpark, is that completed? Um, it's not completed, but they are en route for finishing it by next summer. Um, or maybe not completely finished, but finished enough that we can hold a softball tournament. Um, so we do have the amphitheater. Um, they got the well and the septic system done. And then they're working on the walking trail. So is it active? No, there's people there's can't nothing. really go there and do anything right now. They're still working on like the softball fields. And how's the fundraising coming? I'm pretty good this year. Unfortunately, with all the COVID stuff, we just can't plan anything. Um, so we're just working off donations. There, there was a grant that we could have gotten this year where up to $150,000 would be matched by the state um, or a company. I don't really remember, but we just aren't going to make that much this year, and that's okay. We just don't have our normal events. Like the Celebration of Life couldn't happen. Crime Pond still is kind of up in the air. So we're just working with what we have. And even once it's completed, this is an area that they can add to and do whatever with for, I mean, for long term. Yeah. So um, there's still space to add more things. I'm still pushing for a dog park so I can take my dog there all the time. Um, (laughs) But also there's more land surrounding it that they could buy if they wanted to add on to it in the future. So the amphitheater, is that, what's that going to be used for? 
Um, so they're planning on holding like band concerts, things that the school wants to do, like they can put on plays there. Also, if we do like the celebration of life there, we would have like concerts. So um, our first celebration of life, we had Levi Riggs, which is who like an up and coming country singer. He came and he had to stand on. Um, we had somebody donate some trailers and he was standing on a trailer doing his concert. But now we'd actually have a place for him to play, um, which is pretty cool. So that's what we plan on using it for. And they'll be. Um, in front of that, they're putting our pavers that we did in memory of people who have passed away too soon, people's loved ones. What's the name of the park going to be? Abby and Libby Memorial Park. What a perfect way to memorialize them. Yeah, exactly. Which one of did they both play softball? Um, Libby played softball since she was very young, um, and I believe Abby was getting ready to play her first year there. Oh, that's cool. Well, that'd definitely be a nice way to uh, always be able to go and you know keep them in your in your mind. Now, is there gonna be a tr- like trails and stuff there as well? So we're gonna have a walking trail. Um, it won't connect to Delphi's trail system; it's a little far out for that. But around our trail, we'll have like outside musical instruments and different like I think they're even putting like outside workout equipment kind of things that were donated. Um, so just like fun activities around the walking trail to spend time with family and things. I was impressed with the the whole plan when I heard about it at CrimeCon, and I'm glad to see that it's continuing to move forward. And I think the last time we talked, they had gotten the stadium lighting. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming that's all been installed. And um, It's not quite installed. It's actually laying on the ground out there. Oh, uh, <laughs> COVID. But they had to COVID. Exactly. But there was a lot of a lot of underground stuff that had to be done. A lot of behind-the-scenes things that had to be done with the state. So every time you do something, you have to go back and send it to the state, and they have to approve it before it can be done. So it takes a long time and it's a lot longer process than we anticipated. But a lot of stuff has gotten done this summer um, because with COVID, all of these companies that are donating their time and money to help us build this park um, have had a lot of free time. So they're able to help us more. Um, so that's a good part of it, but unfortunately we can't put up the lights until we have the rest of the stuff ready at the softball fields. But they're sitting there waiting, ready to go up. It's actually really amazing to think about it that, you know, 100 years from now that park could still be here and entertaining families in the community. And, I mean, to, just to be a part of that, you being involved in that, that's that's something that most of us never get the opportunity to have that be our life's work. I mean, that's something truly phenomenal for the uh, community there. And I know your, your grandfather at one time, I don't know if he still is. He was quite hands-on and quite involved in this project. Yes. So it's a lot of my grandparents and Abby's grandparents doing it. I don't really work on it that much. I'm just knowledgeable so I can talk about it on podcasts really. But, um, they spend a lot of time out there. I know they go out there. My grandpa went out at least twice a week this summer to mow the grass and put down grass seed because they're trying to get it to not look brown and gross. Right. Um, because there was actually like a slant, so they had to put dirt out to make it level land. So they've been spending a lot of time working on that. And they're there probably every single day just 
helping the guys that are out there working on stuff and making sure things are getting done the way they're supposed to. So they're there a lot, very hands-on and working on it as much as they can. What was your reaction? So I, first off, I kind of just picture Mike Patty out there pointing fingers and, and barking out orders to everybody, <laughs> and, and that brings me a lot of joy to, to think of that. But uh, what was your reaction when, unfortunately, the girls were found and then in a relatively short period of time, in just a few weeks, the the real BS chatter of the people hide behind their keyboards and their computers and saying, the bridge guy looks like Mike Patty. I mean, how do you how do you process that? How what are what are the emotions that or the thoughts that go through you when you hear something like that or read something like that? Luckily, in the beginning, um, I tried to stay away from the group as much as possible because um, I knew it would be bad in the beginning because that's just how people are. It's human nature to expect to the family members. Um, but once I kind of, like, started reading it, I was like, very saddened to hear that somebody that doesn't even know us could say somebody I love so much could do something so awful. It was hard to cope with. My grandpa was like, just let them let talk they're idiots they'll be fine they'll get over it and when the truth comes out they'll realize that they're idiots and that's kind of how my grandpa's been the whole time he was like the police know the truth and we know the truth and that's that's what matters really and that helped a lot that even though my grandpa is being slammed time after time for months um he was able to stay strong through it and that's how we got through it we just kind of leaned on him and like if he could deal with it the rest of us kind of had to, too. Um, there were times that we wanted to, like, scream at these people and tell them how stupid they were, but we kind of just made our way through, and eventually that part stopped. They realized that there was no way it was possible, and they went on to new people. Right. It's. I mean, it's amazing how strong of a man he is and mm-hmm. just how intelligent, too. I mean, one's character is best judged in a time of tragedy and there is no bigger tragedy than this. And to see how you and your family have held up and conducted yourselves, even with people firing shots at you is, is absolutely amazing. Um, when you see, you know, I'm looking at a little picture over here on my, on my clipboard that that's been there for a long time. And it's, it's something that I cut out of the, uh, the comment and it says justice for the girls and it has, you know, the three, I'm sorry, the four girls that passed away in November of 2016. And then it has your sister and Abby on there as well. And then to the right of that, it has the bridge guy. And it says, who is this man? Could you take us through your your thoughts and feelings about when you see that picture or when you saw that picture for the first time? Because you've got to be conflicted as hell, right? You're like, I want to recognize this man on some form because I want to bring justice to the girls. But in another way, you don't want to recognize the guy, right? Because you don't want it to be somebody that you know. Yeah, so the first time I saw that picture, I was actually sitting in Spanish class my junior year. And they they showed it during a press conference. We weren't supposed to watch it in class, but my teacher was like, we're going to watch it anyway because Kelsey's in here and she's going to watch it and we don't want her to watch it alone. So we all sat there and we all saw it together. And I remember staring at the screen and all 25 sets of eyes just looking over at me to see what 
I'm thinking, like what I am showing physically, outwardly, and if I was going to say anything. And I remember, like, I, I didn't have anything to say. I didn't know how I was feeling. I didn't. I don't think I knew how to feel at the time other than I was incredibly proud that my sister did what she did. And then I had time to process it and I was like, wow, that's the guy that did this. And then I found myself looking at every single older man around me for years. I still do it. I watch every person around me so much closer and think about that picture so much. But yeah, I was in disbelief when I first saw it. It was kind of a crazy feeling to think that she did that. But then also, I know that she would do something like that. But it was also scary that we didn't know who it was. And when you when you had the first picture, what was your thought on the age of, of the suspect? When I saw the picture that my sister took or the video, however you want to put it, um, I was probably thinking probably the 30s to 40s because it just it looked like an older person um and it made sense with the sketch but thinking about it now I guess I could see it being somewhere in the middle um between the younger looking sketch and the older sketch somewhere in the middle there yeah because it does seem like there's a lot of disparity as far as age goes from the first to the second I mean one looks like a buff 20 something year old and then the other one looks like a a frumpy 40-year-old uh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But I definitely think it's going to be somewhere in the middle. So I think the current age range is 18 to 40. And I think once we find him, we're going to find that he's probably, I'm going to guess, in his early 30s. Maybe, I guess maybe in his like late 20s. But um, I guess we'll see. Yeah, I definitely I feel like from the first first video, he definitely appears older than what later analysis proved. I th- I mean, I think that's what their explanation for the second sketch was. And I think we talked about that before as well. And Nick, what was your thought about, you know, the disparity between the two sketches? Well, I was to be honest with you, I was shocked. I kind of wondered at first was well, what what information do they have that's that's not being released that has now changed the look of this individual and the the age? I mean, I, the disparity between the age was kind of the biggest shocker to me because I'm the same way. I was looking at it going, this is probably somebody in their late 30s. And then the new picture comes out and I'm like, that's a that's a young man. You know, that that looks to be a young and you said buff. Yeah, like uh, probably early 20s or something. And then the the Internet went crazy and everybody was looking even at former high school students there from Delphi and anybody that had a hairdo that looked like that. uh, Their name was getting blasted all over the place. Yeah, that was that was really crazy, Um, especially when they released that picture. I was away at college. Um, I wasn't anywhere near Delphi. And all of a sudden, I was getting sent pictures of all of my friends. I'm like, these people, like, yeah, I know them. I don't know what they were maybe doing that day. But these are people that like I'm close with. There's absolutely no way they did it. I don't even think that they really knew Libby. 
Um, but I just thought it was so crazy that now that this sketch was out, people were looking at people that I knew. Like, I, I didn't really know these other people that they're releasing other than my family members. But now they're saying, like, this random web sleuth, they're trying to say it could be one of my friends. And, like, that was the craziest part of everything that came after that new sketch. Yeah, I've noticed on Twitter, you definitely... There seems to be a lot of people that have their own theories and, you know, obviously you have to defend some of that stuff because it's ridiculous. And I, I, some of the names that they throw out there, I mean, you know better than anybody. Um, I mean, didn't they accuse, I mean, there were some crazy accusations out there. I mean, just wild accusations that you pretty much had to shut down. Oh, yeah. Um, one of them was like, I was pregnant with my uncle's baby or Libby was, or my uncle and my grandpa did it together. I could go on for like hours of the crazy, crazy rumors. That Real disgusting there. stuff. Yeah. Like awful. And I did shut some of those down. So what is the, is there any local rumor that you want to share that, that, Either you want to share it because you you hate the local rumor, or you think that there could be some some real stuff there. Or I'm I'm curious what the locals, what the what the scuttlebutt is over there in Delphi. I would be curious to hear that stuff too. Um, I don't think anybody local would actually talk to me about that kind of thing. Um, I've never heard any rumors that I know of. I think everybody's still kind of like in the state of mind that there's absolutely no way that our neighbor could have done it mm. or like there's absolutely no way that I could know the person that did this. There's no way anybody in Delphi did it. And that's just kind of what everybody's thought process has been since the beginning. So I think they're still kind of in that state of mind and they're not really looking at the people around them. Um, and if they are, they're not saying it because if they were, I think, <laughs> I think I would know about it. I think they stomp outside my door because they know that he co-barked them. Ah. <laughs> the local kids. It's <laughs> all college students here. Just People just throw out the most awful things to you. It's just... Oh, yeah. The, I think the one before... I went on a super long Twitter break. Um, I wasn't on any social media. Actually, I deleted all the apps um, because I found myself getting super depressed again, which I hadn't been since, like, the very beginning. I had been in a very good place mentally mm -hmm. um and then i was going through one of the facebook groups and they were like talking about the sweatshirt that abby was wearing and it was my sweatshirt and at the time i like i was in high school and so i was very fit um uh, muscular because i was a swimmer i played sports but i was bigger than abby because abby was literally a stick and so they they were kind of fat shaming me and libby and I, I just wasn't having it. Um, so I called them out on that. They were like, there's absolutely no way that's Kelsey's sweatshirt because Kelsey is significantly bigger than Abby. And I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> like, that has absolutely nothing to do with the case. And so that actually put me in a really bad place. And so I deleted all the apps. I wasn't on probably from May until the beginning of July. I wasn't doing, like, any interviews I didn't respond to message requests for like three and a half months. 
Um, so there were a ton of messages that I didn't respond to until I knew I was ready to come back. So that was that was just part of what happens because of all of the the rumors on social media. That's awful. <laughs> well, and the people that throw these things out too, uh, you you. It makes me question, have they ever experienced anything real in their life? Like, what kind of nerf life are they living that they're fine with just tossing these things out? So, you know, things that hurt people. Mm -hmm. And what I found is a lot of them don't have their real names on their accounts. Like, I'll go into their account and they'll have, like, three Facebook friends. And their account was created a month ago. And, like... You're hiding not only behind your screen, but behind a fake account. And so, like, what in your life is making you so upset that you have to go and bash people? Like, if all you do all day is sit and try to solve crimes, that's one thing. But, like, you have to sit behind a screen and do it in this way. Like, saying these kinds of things is just not not healthy for you, but hurtful to other people. And far from productive to finding any resolution in the case. Exactly. I found what I was looking for in regards to what we were talking about on Twitter. Uh, and I'm not going to use his name because I'm not going to do that. But something about a youth pastor. And this, mm-hmm. it's like the guy's, you know, tweets like, it's got to be this guy. And you're yeah. like, he doesn't, he's never provided an alibi. And you're like, how the hell do you know he doesn't, didn't provide an alibi? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So tell me, like, I'm just because he's not telling you, like, I I know who the youth pastor is. He's the youth pastor at my church, actually. And I'm, I graduated with his daughter and some, one of his kids was in Libby's grade or close to Libby's grade. And so now, like, like, they're saying all these things about people I know. And I'm like, I know that they didn't do it. Like, I've talked to them. Like, I know these people personally. And like, if they had done it, they would be caught by now because I know they've got turned in before. And so like these people come out and they're like, he hasn't provided an alibi or he hasn't told anybody where he was, or he's not coming out and defending himself. And I'm like, how do you know he hasn't talked to police about it? How do you know he was in the area? How do you know any of these things you're saying are true? And why are you just coming out and blatantly accusing people of doing this stuff. Why don't you just turn his name in and let the police do their job is kind of my stance on it. Um, but a lot of people just won't do that. They just want, they want me to know that they know that it's this person. No matter who it is, they're always right. Just like freaking Dexter's back and he's on to somebody else. And so like all of these people are giving me different names and they're like I know it's this person I know it's this person I know it's this person well one of you might end up being right but if every single one of you knows it's the person you think it is at least like half of you have to be wrong because you're all giving me different names so and it's just something you have to like you just have to listen to them and be like okay I hear you you're you're valid to have your opinion and think that this is the person that did it but if you're going to think that, why don't you just send it to me? Why do you have to share it on my page where it's going to get deleted and you're going to get blocked? That's where I am now. 
I've had to deal with my fair share of anxiety and depression in my life, and I'm happy to say that there is now an easy way to get help. Because if there is something that interferes with your happiness or is holding you back from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. You can now connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's convenient because it needs to be in our hectic lives. So go get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp really is there for you. They have 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. And guess what? If you aren't happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time. There are even apps available for your computer or smartphone. So whether you're suffering from anxiety, depression, anger, stress, relationship issues, sleeping, trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, or self-esteem, they literally have a licensed professional counselor for you. And of course, everything you share is confidential. The best part is, it's a truly affordable option. Who Killed listeners get 10% off their first month with the discount code WHO. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash who. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again, for 10% off, go to betterhelp.com slash who. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Earlier, you said that you were recently spoke with law enforcement. Was that the uh, Carroll County Sheriff's Department or the state police or a combo of the two? I talked with the Indiana State Police. And what do you think is what do you think might be the speed bump with finding this guy? Because I mean, when when the case first broke and. Then the the picture comes out, and then the voice comes out, the audio comes out. I thought for certain, well, there's no way that they don't catch this guy and catch him very soon. I also thought that maybe there would be a, a chance that he he would become so afraid that that, that suicide would be a, a an easy out for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and but what do you think is the speed bump? Why don't we have this guy today? Do you, do, does this guy have help, or what do we need from the public? What is missing from the investigation, in your opinion? I really, really believe that somebody knows something and they're not turning it in. I think that 
whether it be somebody's mom, somebody's wife, somebody's girlfriend, somebody's neighbor, best friend, whatever that might be, he's told somebody and they're afraid to tell somebody. Um, I think that somebody definitely knows and they just are too scared to turn that in. Maybe they just they really love this person and they still don't believe that it could be him, but deep down they know that it's him and they're just not ready to let go. So I really do think they're just one tip away. They just need that name. They need that person to come forward and say, Hey, it was my brother or Hey, it was, it was my uncle. They need that person to come out and say it. And they're just not getting that. Has there been any talk about, you know, and they've kept everything very close in the article from last week in the Daily Mail was they talked about, you know, the former agent on the case talked about how it was such a unique crime scene. It was so unusual than anything he had ever seen before. Did they ever say that they have DNA or is it also being held back? I think that a lot of that stuff is being held very close to the vest. I know the Indiana State Police won't come out and say that kind of stuff, um, but I know that our sheriff's department has come out and said a few things, but not directly saying that they have DNA. I've heard that they do. I've heard that they don't. I've heard that they have very little, not enough to do anything with. Um, I've also heard that they have, like, maybe a partial fingerprint, I think was in one of Tobe's articles, but I don't think they've ever come out and really said we definitely do. I think it's always been we can't confirm or deny that we have this information. And I think that'll probably continue to be held close to the vest until the case comes to a close. Yeah, I figured that it just was one of those things that you know, you always wonder and everything's everybody's always so worried about whether or not they have DNA or don't have DNA. And, mm -hmm. just... and I think that's something that like, like, yeah, it'd be interesting to know, but how is that going to help a web sleuth figure out who did it? And everybody's so, like, eager to have all of the knowledge. I am, too. I can't wait to be able to say, yeah, I know who killed my sister. I know how she died. And I don't have to keep fighting the way I'm fighting now. I'll always continue to advocate for her, but someday I'll have that knowledge and I won't have to keep fighting. And so I look forward to that day, but we don't really need to know right now. That's not going to help me in my fight. And so I don't think that'll help anybody else in their fight. That's just information that the police need to know. And that if they have it, hopefully they're using it to their full advantage and figuring out who did this. Do you know if they took down uh, personal information of the people that volunteered for searching for the girls? They took down names, phone numbers, that kind of stuff. I don't remember signing a paper myself, but I've seen pictures of a paper. So I do believe that some people signed it. I also probably could have signed a paper with my name on it and don't remember it. Um, so I think that they did, but all of that's just super blurry still. I would hope that they did. I would hope that they were organized enough to know that like, Typically, they do revisit the crime scene, and he was probably was helping us with the search. He was probably there somewhere. I'm sure he was in one of the groups that wasn't anywhere near Highbridge, or maybe he was in the group near Highbridge. Um, I don't know why he would be stupid enough to do that, but also, I, I can never really imagine 
a murderer being really that smart. Um, so I guess, I don't know. I, I hope that his name is on that list somewhere and that if it is, they're going through every single person on that list. They also set up um, on the day that the girls were found, so the day after they were dropped off at the bridge, you they, they set up um, roadblocks and, and checkpoints, didn't they? And were asking questions of, of motorists driving the area. Yes. Could you, so could we you have... There was three or four of them, I believe. Yeah, there were a couple... Because Delphi and Carroll County in general has a very big German Baptist community. Um, so they don't get the news. Um, and most of them don't listen to the radio, I don't think. So they decided that the roadblocks would be good so that they could see everybody who was coming and going. And so they, I believe they were on all the roads that enter and exit Delphi. Um, so they were handing out pamphlets. They were talking to every person asking them if they knew the person. I don't think we had the sketch then. I think that it was just the picture of what came from Libby's video. Um, But they were asking if they recognized him um, to everybody that was coming through, just to make sure that they were reaching every person they could. So on the local level, that, that image was out there, circulating in that manner anyway, that the police were showing it to people at that time before, before it was released in the news. (laughs) As far as you, as far as you may know, I think that the roadblocks were after it was released. Okay. Um, or maybe they were just showing pictures of the girls. Um, I don't think I ever. I entered and exited Delphi quite a bit, but in those first few weeks, I had probably wasn't going through very often. Um, so I wasn't ever stopped in any of them. But my friends who were um, did kind of tell me a little bit about it, but I don't really remember what they were like asked or anything right. um, and it may have varied depending on the vehicle the person yeah the officer is there anything that you feel like the you know nick asked you before about uh you know the rumors or anything like that is there anything that you feel like hasn't been said that you want to address and just make sure that you know everybody like are you still comfortable doing these podcasts and doing you know, articles and being an advocate. I mean, you've mentioned getting depressed and, you know, I've dealt with depression for a long time. So I understand, you know, the pains of that. And I was just wondering how, you know, how it is that mentally, you know, how you're dealing with it. And so I actually um, started doing an online therapy group because we can't actually go to therapy right now. Um, Or maybe we can now, but we weren't able to during all of that. Um, so I actually started, um, there's this app called Better Tree or Better Help. Um, I started using that and I had a counselor. I don't think I'll ever be able to find a counselor that really specializes in what I'm dealing with, but she's really good at helping me try to figure out how to cope, uh, and to learn better ways to cope than what I was. Cause I was just like, whenever I would get depressed, I would grab a bunch of food, go to bed, like, lay in bed all day. I wasn't working out anymore. I would just binge on whatever I could eat. I wasn't, like, throwing it up, but I was eating everything, gaining a ton of weight, and then that made me more depressed. Um, so that's how I was coping with it for a minute. But now I've learned that I can use that anxiety and depression to 
oh, if I like start writing, talking about my feelings kind of helped a little bit. So I worked through the depression, got through that. I still have a lot of the PTSD that comes from it. So like after interviews, I nap a lot. And instead of binging on junk food, I go and eat a banana or an apple or something, um, which makes me feel better than what I was feeling. Um, So I think once I was able to like get out of the little rut that I was in, advocating became a lot easier again. Um, And I'm starting to do interviews. I'm just not taking them as often. Um, So I think I've already turned down like a couple. There was one person that like wanted to write a book and I just never responded. Um, That was just way too much thought to put into it right now I think she wanted to write more about like how social media affects like murder victims and stuff and I was just like that's a lot like I I could talk about that for hours um but I she wanted to add some case stuff that there's just not enough to write a book so I just ignored it but yeah I think for a little while I just needed a break and that break kind of helped me to get out of the rut and now I'm slowly kind of like progressing back into it. It's just taking a lot of time to get back to where I was. I think I'm still comfortable doing it. I just won't do it as often as I was doing it before. Have you been able to connect with any other victims and share your experiences and learn from, you know, maybe learn from them a little bit? Yeah. So there's actually a podcast called Murder in My Family. Um, Mike Morford does that one. And We actually have a group of people who all have had somebody in their family that was killed due to violent crime, and that group has been so helpful. We talk not as often as we used to, but I'm able to reach out to all of these people. There's a lot of people, like Bill Thomas is in there, um, Mona Taylor, uh, Connie Land. um, Mike's in there, obviously, as like one of the main, like he just runs it, though. So there's a lot of people in there. Um, I know Drew Collins, who is the Iowa girl's father. So all of these really awesome people who have lost people the same way I have, we're all kind of in different stages of our cases, but we've all felt what we're feeling. So I'm able to like message Bill or message Mona or message Connie. And we're all like, yeah, we've been there. We know what you're feeling. And here's how we coped with it. Here's how you could, you could kind of use that to help you maybe. Um, And I try it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I can try something else. But it's awesome to have all of these people on your side. I talked to Amanda Shirley, who's DJ Ficky's sister. I talked to her a ton because we kind of, we connected a lot faster. I think that I tend to like, I want to help people who don't maybe get as much publicity as my sister does. Um, So I talk to these people all the time. Um, It's a really big support system for me, which has been really helpful. Bill Thomas is an incredible guy. I was going to say that too. (laughs) Yeah. So that's nice that uh, he's in that group. And uh, Bill Huffman and I enjoy Bill Thomas very much. But I'm wondering in that group setting, does he allow anybody else to to talk? Or does Bill (laughs) Thomas just talk the whole time? Um, No, he, he... don't really like we do like emails back and forth mostly okay. are they like 20 um, pages are they like 20 pages long yeah kind of no <laughs> no i'm just i'm just okay. kidding Bill, bill's just he's just one of those guys if you get on the get on zoom with him it's yeah. like your monday's shot 
Yeah, well. he'll talk for hours, but it's okay. Like, I enjoy talking to him. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, he's great. He, like, he's been going through this for years, so he mm-hmm. knows he knows exactly what I'm going through at this point of not knowing. And he's able to help me through that. And he's kind of – he helps me more on the advocating side because he's had to advocate very strongly on his own. Um, so he does – kind of helped me a lot more with that than the emotional part. Um, I tend to go towards like the more older women kind of thing. Um, Like, I guess it's like a mother kind of is what they are to me more than sisters. But I talk to them a lot more than I talk to Bill or Drew or any of the men in the group, just because I think, I think women tend to understand emotions better. Like, I know that sounds very sexist, but it's no, that's, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) It's not sexist if it's right. I've been in therapy for 30 years and I still don't understand it. So yeah, you're right. Yeah. So like, I just like connect better emotionally with them. And then I talk to the guys a lot more when it, when I need somebody to help me like decide what I want to advocate. So they're able to think more logically than empathetically, I think. Yeah. And you know, having that type of support system definitely really, that's got to help you just in planning your media appearances what you do what not to do because when we talked the first time i mean you you were really working yourself into a into you know burning your candles at both ends as they say um because i think when we talked you said you had an interview pretty much every day or four days a week Mm -hmm. at that time and that was back i mean that was back in the early part of the year but Mm, january february yep exactly and so that's when you took a break after after that? Um, I was still doing podcasts pretty frequently. Well, interviews in general, actually, up until after after the anniversaries, for sure. Because I, I know I did like three or four of the weeks of the anniversary. And I think I was still doing them up until maybe April. And then I think that's when everything happened. And I was like wow, I just, I need out of this. This is just getting to be too much. Um, and I think I was, I was overworking myself with school and work. And then my second job, which is advocating for my sister. And so after a full day of work, I would come home and I would spend all day trying to get new podcast interviews, which was fine. Like I could schedule them and I would have the rest of the day. And I was okay with that until I, kind of started to get really worn out and people were irritating me and I'm normally a very patient person and I could handle all of these really stupid idiots all the time but when these people were starting to frustrate me and I just wanted to scream at them I knew it was like time for me to get out of there I was like it I just need to take a break I need to shut it down for a little bit um and everybody was so awesome about it they were like yeah that's fine like we understand we need to take breaks ourselves sometimes so Amanda and Sarah were all on there sharing my posts for me every day and making sure that Libby and Abby were still getting advocated for even if I wasn't there, which was a really good thing for me because I didn't feel guilty about taking a break since I had other people out there to help. Well, and you got to take care of you first mm-hmm. and foremost, because if they're, if, if you're not healthy, I mean, you're, you're one of the loudest voices for this case right now. So if you're not healthy, if you're not good, it's no good for the case itself. So take care of you first and screw everybody else. Uh, exactly. Um, I think I was, 
I think part of the reason I decided it was time to take a break um, was just because I could sit there and continue to talk about the girls and feel super sad and depressed all the time. Or I could sit there and think about what my sister would want. Like, would my sister want me to sit here and be sad all day? Would she want me to be depressed and worried and binge eating because I'm stressed? Absolutely not. She would want me to be out there living my best life and enjoying college and making friends rather than instead of like, like instead of staying at college and enjoying my time there, I was coming straight home and doing podcast after podcast and not talking to anybody. I wasn't socializing. I wasn't joining clubs. I wasn't doing anything because all I did with my free time was do podcasts. All I did was do interviews with news media because that's what they wanted. They wanted to hear about the case. They wanted me to keep advocating because I was becoming such a strong voice for the girls, which was what needed to happen. I needed to be a strong voice for them. They needed that. Um, and they deserve that. They deserve justice and I'll continue to fight until I get it. But I can't be that strong, independent voice for them. If I'm not mentally there, if I'm depressed and sad and fighting my own battles, I can't continue to fight for them the way that they deserve. So I took a break and I'm better now, hopefully. I've learned that once I hit that limit, a limit before I hit the limit, really, not to over push myself and to take a break when I need it and not to spend all of my free time advocating. Like, Take time for yourself, go camping, go on vacation, put your phone down. Has really helped me to continue to be that strong advocate without overdoing it. Yeah, you know, it's funny that the, the difference between our conversations from January and February about that. Like, you literally, you talked about, you know, you'd be at a party and your family function and you'd be tweeting with your friends or, you know, victims' families or whatever. And it was just like, yeah, you, you can see how that just could become overwhelming and just, you know, the whole thing, like, like you said, you went to school originally to be a, or wanted to be a journalist until you realized the shady side of journalism. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's not any good, but you know, you've been able to change course a couple different times. So it's good to see. And it's good to see that you're, you know, that you did take time out for yourself. And literally, like you said, you got rid of everything and just put the phone down and, and just like Nick said, if you're not healthy, the case isn't healthy. You are the voice of Abby and Libby. So. And I don't, I don't think you can help people if you're not helping yourself. And I think a lot of learning that came from my psychology classes, really, because my professors were always like, if you're not mentally healthy, you're not going to be mentally healthy for school. And whenever they would say that, I'm like, wow. Like, I think that can apply to life a lot, too. Um, If you're not mentally healthy, are you really healthy at all? You have to take care of yourself first. And if you're not taking care of yourself, nothing you do is going to be worthwhile for you. You have to keep putting forth the effort to take care of yourself in order to keep moving on in life and going on and coping with different things. And that's coping is part of life, but you have to be able to mentally get through that coping process and the coping process could last years but if you're working through it and not spending all your time 
like sobbing about it and pouting and you're putting effort into getting better, you'll get better and you'll be able to continue to do all of the amazing things that you can do. You just have to be mentally healthy in order to do that. And you said earlier that you like helping some of your, your friends, your new friends that, that are, you know, family members, they are victims themselves Mm -hmm. and getting, spreading the word and getting their cases out there that ones that have not received as much coverage as, as the Delphi case. I would love to help in any way that the true crime garage can. So if, if there are any cases that, uh, that need coverage, if you want to send that information to bill and, uh, or, or anything at all, we would be very happy to tell, uh, tell the stories. Oh yeah. I can give you a full list. I have a lot of friends. It's really sad. Um, because a lot of times we're finding that awful. Um, a lot of older white males aren't getting publicity or if anything involves drugs or prostitution, it's not getting media coverage. So we're trying a lot of different things to get these people coverage, but it's just not happening because of who the victims are, which is terrible to me, but it's something that we really don't understand. It's just what the media perceives as important is different than what we perceive as important. So I really believe in in the advocacy part on, like you mentioned, the drugs and the, you know, the sex workers not getting the publicity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's understandable from the media perspective as far as, you know, they've got this. It opens up a bunch of different avenues that they don't want to necessarily deal with. That's why you have to have certain you know, people to advocate for those people like the Atlantic city four, or, I mean, I I've done a number of cases like the new Bedford highway killer. All these people were either into drugs or into prostitution. And, and it's just like, in all the cases and all the research that I've done is it's like, you'd recognize the, the lack of police commitment towards actually finding answers. And it, it's, a, it's annoying because one you know, if you've got a killer out there, my cat is literally eating my hand right now. Um, sorry. Um, it's it's it doesn't matter who the victim is. It shouldn't matter who the victim is. Everybody deserves the same amount of help. In in my opinion, I just feel like it's it's a shame when people aren't treated fairly because of maybe their profession or their drug habit or addictions. Yeah, so like those two cases that I advocate for a lot, I don't share as much about one of them as I do the other just because she doesn't share as much, I don't think. I share whatever she shares, though. First, I advocate for Amanda and her her brother who was killed, DJ. He had a really big drug problem at one point in his life, and I think he was finally getting over it. But because of that drug problem, the media won't share his story, which is a very sad case. And then there's... Um, Connie Land, who's advocating for her daughter, Sydney, she, I don't think that she was ever involved in prostitution, but I think that somebody was trying to get her to be involved in it. And because of that, somebody shot up the house. They're pretty sure they know who did it. Uh, He went to jail for another crime um, and then got let out on parole. Um, So that's the case we're advocating for a lot right now, too. But that case has zero media coverage. Like you wouldn't find very many like news articles about Sydney if you looked it up. Yeah, I met her at CrimeCon uh, in or in not Orlando in New Orleans when she mm-hmm. was advocating there. And yeah. yeah, she's very passionate. Yeah, she is, and she's like 
she's one of those women you wouldn't want to cross. Like, like she can be a little scary. Like, like not in like a bad way, but like she's so strong about advocating that like she's like badass. Like it's awesome. <laughs> like I would want her fighting for me. Yeah, like Nick, you guys do a lot of. I mean, most. I mean, you do a lot of unsolved cases, and I mean, how do you feel about? you know, some of the coverage that some of these cases don't get or don't get? Um, well, it's difficult because, as you said, you want everyone to have a voice, and, and they should. And the other the other troubling thing is that there are so many unsolved cases out there that, yes, the media does have to kind of pick and choose. They can't cover all of them. And so... The media wants to present a story where the victim is likable, mm-hmm. and I and I get that. And but at the end of the day, you know, we we covered a case. This guy, um, he was he was a drug user, drug pusher. Um, but at the end of the day, he doesn't come home to his family. He still he still has a family. He's somebody's child. He's he's somebody's father. And, you know, the, those stories, I believe, need to be told as well. I also think, too, with a lot of times with those types of cases, there's potentially more leads. And, I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to go very far to find a, a bad person that they may have been associated with. Mm-hmm. And even more reason to tell their story. Keep the story alive, keep it on the minds of the public, and keep it in the, the minds of the, the investigators who, unfortunately, they get new cases and they move on. And, uh, but if you can keep it in their, in their minds, maybe that file stays at the, at the top of the stack. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, you look at all these cases that aren't getting anything, and then you're, like, just getting interview after interview request, and they're all seeing this and, like, Sometimes, like, you're, like, really excited about it because, like, your sister's getting a ton of publicity, but then you see they, somebody else posted it, and then you're like, wow, imagine what all of these people are feeling. Like, they have to feel so defeated seeing that I'm getting another interview and they're not, which I know I probably shouldn't feel guilty about that. Like, I'm putting myself out there and reaching out to these people, and people see the girls and they see me, and they're like, wow, Kelsey could be my big sister, my daughter even for some people and Libby and Abby could be our daughters and our sisters and our cousins and our best friends um so they they look at our case and they see themselves I think and so I think that's why we get a lot of the attention and they just I think you have to make yourself more personable to get that attention which helps a lot and if there's somebody out there listening to this and and saying hey I'm one of those people you know, something terrible happened to this person I know or a family member of mine, whether it be months ago, years ago, what have you. If you're listening to this and you say, hey, I'm, I'm who they're talking about now. If you, want to, if you want to help push the wheels of justice, make a phone call to, your, to the investigating agency. Remind them that you're still there, that, that this case still exists, that there is still justice to be found. And, and don't stop. Remind them every now and then, we're still here. We still want something from you. And, and any of these people that are out there that have, that have taken away a loved one from, from anyone, they are, 
they are a public safety risk to everyone forever. I mean, so yeah, it's it's sad that there are so many cold cases, and I I I pray that that we don't end up with that situation here with the Delphi case. Um, again, it's like I thought I thought we would have the answers in March of 2017. I really did, and uh, here we're sitting. Um, well, three and a half years later, and and still maybe even more questions now than than back then. Yeah, I definitely agree. I definitely think that you have to keep you have to keep the word out there. You have to make yourself personable. You have to go talk to your law enforcement. I email our law enforcement, our detectives with Indiana State Police. I I emailed them back and forth. Pretty often, if somebody sends me a tip, I'm emailing them. I'm not letting them forget the case. And I think that helps a lot. Like, they're going to continue to look at things if I'm continuing to send them things. If you're continuing to send them information, they're going to have stuff to keep looking at. So they're not going to stop. As long as they're getting tips, they're going to keep working. As long as they're hearing from family, um, as long as they see that people still care about the case, um, and even if they don't hear that people still care about the case, as long as the family cares, they still care. Um, they're going to keep fighting. So you have, just have to show that you're not stopping until they have answers for you. Like, you deserve those answers. Your family member deserves those answers. So you keep fighting and make sure that the police keep fighting, and they will. Unfortunately, I do think there are some corrupt police agencies, and that might be part of the problem. But as long as you're fighting, I think that you can you will get justice. I know that you'll get justice. Every single person will in the end. And it's really sad that there's, well, there's over 200,000 unsolved murder cases alone. That doesn't include the missing persons cases or the cases that were ruled a suicide that were actually a homicide or that go unreported just because the body wasn't found or they didn't have family. So there's just so many cases out there that deserve attention that deserve justice that probably won't get justice but we can remain hopeful that they will get what they deserve and that in the end every person is going to be judged rightfully by someone in one way or another um, and justice will be served whether that's here on earth or somewhere else and that's the only way we can really get through it the other thing too that i would like to pass on to potential tipsters is so often we question ourselves, we question what we may know or what we don't know. And a lot of times we have somebody out there that goes, I think I have some information, but they, it's almost like they're embarrassed to come forward or to approach law enforcement with, with whatever tip they have or information they may have. And so often people will reach out to a friend or their wife or their boyfriend or whomever, someone close to them and, and show them and say, do I have something here? Should I take this to the police? If you've already gone that far with with thinking that you have something, send it to the police. Let them decide if you have something here or not. Don't 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 take mom's advice and go, well, my mom said it's nothing important. No, pass it along to the people that that know the cases and can do something with that information if it is in fact good information. Yeah, and I don't think there's any tip that isn't so there, there are some silly tips. I get right. that. Um, but I think that if you think something's important, 
if you're looking at something and you're like, wow, this guy looks exactly like the guy or just like the girl or whatever case it is, um, if you have that information and you're not turning it in, how are you being helpful? Like you have that, you could solve this case. And even if you don't want to call, most of the time there's a tip email, you can email it to them or mm-hmm. ask a friend to call it in or ask a friend to email it in. Definitely I, give that to someone. I actually think the email tips are, are much better, is the much better route to go. It's, it's, it's a little more comfortable for the person submitting the tip, one. But then two, it's a written record for that agency to have forever of the information that you passed along. There's no playing telephone here where I told somebody this, I, you know, I told, I told the, the man that answered the phone this, and then he passed it along and it, the story changed a little. And then the other guy took a few notes and now it's all been, it's all big mess. No, type it out, email it, send it to the, the proper channels. Um, Leave that yeah. digital trail. Yes. Yeah, I think that our law enforcement has definitely came out and said that several times that if you send in an email, we always have that information. We always have your contact info. If we need to go back and call you, if we need to go back and send you an email and ask for more, we have that there. We can go back and look at that tip as many times as we want. We can't call you every single time. We can't like call you at two in the morning when we're working on this and say, what did she say like about this or what did she say about that? We have that all written down right there. So all of that information is always available and it's more comfortable. Like you don't have to like call in and be nervous. You can go ahead and email us and that's actually better for us. And I definitely, I definitely think that's something that they're always open about. They're like email us, like you can call us. Yeah, that's great. You can come in and talk to us. That's great too. But if you email us, we have it. We have all of your information. We have all of their information. Everything that you want us to know about this person, if it's in an email, we have it. And I think that's that's really awesome. A really awesome tool for them, a resource for them to continue to look at that tip if they need to. And what is the email address again? For Abby and Libby? Yes. I don't email the same one as the tip line. Um, of course you don't. You have, I can the, find you have the secret, a double secret line. Yeah, but I can look at it. But Kelsey, I'm getting a little concerned. There's been a lot of sirens in your neighborhood. I'm, I'm concerned know, for your safety. Like, so I <laughs> live next to the sheriff's department of West Lafayette. And I think that there were like three cop cars and at least one fire truck that I just heard. So <laughs> I, that's why I was just looking at my phone. I was like, maybe, maybe the locket scanner sent me something. <laughs> Okay, so I have Abby and Libby tip at C-A-C-O-S-H-R-F dot com. So that would be the Carroll County Sheriff's yeah. Department. Yeah, that's what I just got to. And that actually, it goes into a like, like an, it's like an email dump, but all of our investigators can get to it. So like Carroll County gets to it. The FBI can get to it. The Indiana State Police can get to it. It all just goes together so that whoever's investigating that day, whoever's looking at this tip, that tip, it can get to the right person. And the phone tip line for Indiana State Police is 800-382-7537. Yeah. And also, if you call, I found this out because I was calling calling animal control because I had a stray dog at my job in Delphi. And I called the Delphi Sheriff's Department line. And actually, if you call into the sheriff's department, um, one of the automated 
options for you to do is an Abby and Libby tip. So if you don't know that number and you have the Delphi Sheriff's Department number, you just click, I think it was number three, and it'll send you to the Abby and Libby tip line. Well, that's pretty sophisticated. And at least it's definitely, um, that's definitely impressive that they're putting that much, you know, effort into acquiring as many tips as possible. What's the reward in, oh, the yeah. reward up to? It was over 200000 at one point, right? I think last I heard it was 250000 okay. Jeez. You would think that that would be motivation for somebody to turn on somebody if they... Turn, yeah, turn in your uncle, turn in your your cousin. Yeah, just turn them in. Like, if you do, I'll give you $250,000 right now. I'll, I know exactly where to get it for you. I'll give it to you. If you solve this, you'll get it. I do have to run, guys. Um, yeah, I was going to say, do you guys have any final final thoughts? I don't want to keep anybody too long. I mean, Nick, do you have to re- run like right now, right yeah, this second? Yeah, so I just wanted to say before I hop off of here, okay. uh, God bless you, Kelsey. Uh, stay strong and let today be the day. Yeah, you too. Bye. Uh, was there anything that you wanted to say before I let you go today? No, I don't think so. I think we pretty much covered everything. Yeah, I think in the... The hours of conversations that we've had, I think we've, we've probably covered a, a few different surfaces. So I hope that uh, I hope you have a great weekend. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. You too. Thanks for having me on. Thank you again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with that wraps up my conversation with Kelsey German. So many thanks to Nick from the ever popular True Crime Garage podcast. He is always an addition to the show. And I hope that you guys really enjoyed listening to Kelsey and hearing her side of the story. It's definitely one of the tragic cases that our country is dealing with at the moment as far as unsolved murders go. And I hope that one day, very soon hopefully, that there will be answers. And again, if you guys have any information in regards to Libby and Abby's case, uh, they do encourage you to email them at abbyandlibbytip at C-A-C-O-S-H-R-F dot com. And they do have a tip line, which, again, Nick said was 844-459-5786. And, again, the reward is a mind-boggling $250,000. So if you know something, please please turn it into the investigators and you can walk away with a hefty check. So again, all these families deserve answers and Abby and Libby's families are just waiting for the right person to come forward because as they say, someone knows something. So if you've enjoyed this episode and my other shows, you can help support the podcast by donating to the show by clicking on the left-hand side of slowburnmedia.com, and that is slow minus the W. You can also contribute to the show via the Venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3 or via PayPal with my other username, billhuffman123 at yahoo.com. And again, whatever contribution you're able to provide, it does help keep these podcasts running. And it does help keep these cases that may not get the coverage they deserve in the spotlight. But if you do want to support the show and do not want to make a contribution, you can do so by leaving a five-star review on whatever app you listen to your favorite podcasts. 
I do drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday at midnight. So if you have any information on any of the cases that I've covered that are unsolved, you can always reach out to the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI or via Crime Stoppers, and you can always remain anonymous. And if you want to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered, as well as the new shows that I have coming down the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. And you guys, thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much to Kelsey and Nick. I hope that one day there will be answers and we can put this case to rest. But until next time, you guys stay healthy and be safe. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. 